Hey, I'm Asher. And I'm Jackson. And what you're about to listen to is strictly confidential. Hey, Jackson, how's your week been? That felt weird. That felt weird. It did feel weird. Should I try and say it to you? Yeah, do it to... uh, Show me how it's done. Hey, Asher. Yeah? How's your week been? It's been great, Jackson. Okay, now let me me try to copy that perfect pronunciation. Hey, Jackson. How's your week been? It's been good. I'm scared, though. I'm very scared. And the reason I'm scared is I rent this house, right? I am not a homeowner for reasons beyond... Well, just for reasons. I don't want to be a homeowner yet. So I rent this house, and the other day, my wife and I were doing some cleaning, and I found not one, not two, not three, but six different cans of wasp killer. What? What? (laughs) Should I be scared of the amount of wasp killer that the previous tenant felt like they needed? Because I, I feel like it's two scenarios. One, they killed wasps, and there are no more wasps in this home. But the issue with that is there are several completely unopened or at least mostly full wasp killer containers, meaning they killed a wasp or two wasps, and they're scared of them coming back and haunting me later. Yeah, that's a little concerning. There's nothing nothing comforting about <laughs> there being a ton of wasp spray, because it's not like... Oh, all the wasps are dead. That's why they have so many cans of wasp killer. Like the new ones, like there are some that are very low in the container or in the cabinet. The issue is that there are some newer ones that are not very low. And it seems like either they're very good with their aim and just squirt and hit every time. Or they let several wasps get away and are scared those wasps are bringing an army back. Do you understand my fear here and my anxiety towards what could happen in the near future? Well, it's not a hot take that wasps are the worst. You gotta like bees because even if you're allergic to them and they make you die, they are an important part of our ecosystem. Whereas wasps are just mean, awful bugs. Their most iconic feature is this giant needle. Like the... That they can use indiscriminately. It doesn't kill them to use it, and they clearly know it. The closest thing you could describe it as is a military he- helicopter with a rifle hanging out the bottom. Like, it, it's dangerous and scary, and they're huge, always. Every time I see a wasp, I think, that's definitely bigger than the wa- last wasp I saw. Yeah. And in Utah, we're lucky to where we don't actually have very many bugs, I mean, I haven't been bitten by a mosquito since I moved here, and we rarely have a fly or anything, and every time we do, our athletic dog catches it. But wasps, that's something I'm scared of now. Clearly, the previous tenant had a fear as well, although I'm going to comfort you by offering a counter-narrative, which is what I have done every time I go to the grocery store and I come back with sunscreen. Because I'm never quite sure if I have sunscreen, and it always feels like a good idea to have more. Like, it couldn't hurt. I get that, but let me pitch a counter-argument from a very not-logically-thinking place. With the sun, I'm okay getting attacked by the sun for a couple minutes, right? (laughs) Okay, I see where this is going. 
if there was a swarm of wasps attacking me for a couple minutes, I will not be okay. <laughs> and I understand that it's not a perfect analogy, but neither is going to the store and getting sunscreen and going to the store and getting wasp killer. That's a good point. Yeah, you don't really, you're not in the checkout aisle and you're like, you know what? I might get attacked by a wasp today. <laughs> and like, I'm going to the beach later. I got to get some wasp killer. <laughs> I mean, let's get forensic. Have you seen any signs of a struggle? Uh, no, but the reason I cleaned out that cabinet was because I saw ants. And so I looked in the cabinet thinking, oh, I bet I bet these people have dealt with ants before. Let's see if they have any ant killer. Not any ant killer. Lots of wasp killer. And the ants were easy to take care of. I just put down a couple traps and sprayed some raid and it. The ants killed themselves after a couple days. May they rest in peace. But the wasps, no sign of them yet. And the yet is what scares me. So clearly the owners of that house had a constant fear of those flying, stinging bugs. And experiencing a strong, irrational fear causes you to do some irrational and strange things, doesn't it, Jackson? I was going to ask you to do this. I was going to ask you to transition for me. All you can do is look at the evidence that's been left behind and try to figure out the lives of the people before. And so what we're talking about today... (laughs) is the Dyatlov Pass incident. And the main reason I wanted to talk about this was because the only accent I can do very well is my Russian accent. Yeah, it's and not so bad. A, a couple times during this, I will say something like, in Soviet Russia, the Dyatlov Pass you. Yeah. Stuff like that. But before we dive into this, I want to preface it by saying this episode may have a little bit of graphic depictions of injuries, but every time that's about to happen, this sound will play. Okay, so let's dive in. Between February 1st and 2nd in 1959, nine skiers slash hikers disappeared in the northern Ural Mountains in the former Soviet Union, what is now Russia. They were all from the Ural Polytechnic Institute, which is the biggest technical institute in Russia. They also had the highest grade hiking certification available in Russia at the time. This area is now named after their leader, Igor Dyatlov, which I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing right, but I'm going to say it probably a lot during this time. So if you know how to pronounce it, let me know at some point later, but you're going to have to hear it pronounced wrong a decent amount. During that night, something happened, though. The bodies were found like this. Six had died from hypothermia. Three had other physical trauma-based injuries. One of them had a fractured skull, and two of them had chest fractures. And additionally... The body of another team member was missing their tongue and their eyes. The investigation concluded that an unknown compelling force caused their deaths, which is the most metal way to conclude an investigation ever. Yeah, that term has seared itself into my mind. The fact that that is the official statement, the conclusion of the investigation, which apparently was only recently declassified, was the phrase unknown compelling force yeah and so one small interesting thing is that there were originally 10 expedition members and one of them was injured on the way up named yuri yudin and they ended up living to be 75 dying in 2013 and a lot of what we know about the original trip comes from his recollection of what happened but all of the interesting stuff happened after he left it was just stuff like 
um, Dyatlov was supposed to send a telegram to him at their university when they got down on the 12th of February, but no messages had come by the 20th, which is when friends and families of the travelers requested a search party. I guess that accident, that injury that he sustained, and I didn't know about this person. Uh, I've only read the most basic summary of the event. That injury he sustained ended up saving his life, clearly. But I mean, absolutely, yeah. What may even be crazier is that, like, and why this incident is even scarier is the fact that he had nothing really to report. Like everything was routine, right? He did. He, it didn't seem right. like anything. He didn't have any reason to suspect anyone of any foul play. There was no equipment that was malfunctioning. It all seemed normal. Like his account is boring, and that's what makes the incident even crazier because there's there's no clues there. Yeah, it's the boring elements of his account make what's going on here so interesting, and what's going on here is complete mystery. As we're going through this, we're going to find there are decent theories on what could have happened, but no concrete evidence on really what happened. Basically, and this is all speculation based on diaries and cameras that they found of the dead afterwards. But on the trek up, supposedly, they got a little lost and needed to camp for the night. So Dyatlov decided to have them camp on the slope instead of a safer area, um, which is what people believe made it them cold and leave the tent and die for some reason, but that's not nearly as interesting as the cooler theories that we'll get into. The conditions in which the bodies were found are- is so interesting. I would make this a mystery, because it's not uncommon for mountaineers to die. It is a dangerous activity, and I don't think that anyone who is mountaineering doesn't understand that. Like, they know that, that it's one of the most dangerous things a human can do is- you know, like there's an area of mountains that people climb called like the dead zone or like uh, dead something, an area at which there's not even enough oxygen to sustain human life. So it's a dangerous thing to do. So just people dying on a mountain isn't really worthy of a decades long mystery. It's the way in which these bodies were found and the state they were in that make it. There's enough people on Mount Everest that they are right now experiencing traffic jams because there are specific paths that are possible and lots of people who want to scale the mountain. But that just makes it, like, congestion just makes it even more dangerous. And there yeah. are so many people who have died on Mount Everest that now bodies make landmarks. And guides will be like, everybody wave at Mr. Green, and there'll be just a body in a green like wearing green climbing gear that's just been there for years and no one knows who that person even is but being able to collect that body is pretty much impossible because every single pound matters when you're at that altitude and so even like a well-known route up everest is still littered with bodies but the difference between those bodies and these bodies is that on the way up Everest, you know how you died. You overexerted your energy, carried enough weight, and weren't able to survive the cold. Or you were unable to make it up the rest of the way because you got sick and your body didn't have enough energy to rehabilitate itself. Like Stuff like that happens on the mountain, and science knows why Mr. Green is there. 
Correct. But the interesting thing about these bodies is the way they were found. The first several were found on the 26th, so six days after the search party started. And the reason everything seems so uncertain about their disappearance is what was found on the bodies and at the campsite. The tent was half torn down and covered in snow, but it looked like the tent was torn apart from the inside, meaning something was going on in the tent and they needed to get out fast. The shoes were all there and eight or nine sets of sock or single shoe footprints or even just barefoot footprints were left in the snow. And after about 50 yards, the footprints completely disappeared and were covered by other snow. Several of the bodies found were left in poses that looked like they were on their way back to the campsite. But the first, I think, five bodies were found on the 26th, and the last four weren't found until two months later in early May. Several of the bodies were dressed warmer than the others, which implies that when the first ones died, the others took their clothes for warmth. And what was interesting was, even with the bone fractures, the skull ones and the chest ones, no external wounds had been found other than on a woman named Dubinina. Dubinina? Dubinina. She was found missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and a fragment of skull bones. But most scientists believe her injuries were inflicted by the weather post-mortem. I don't fully believe this because all of the other people were found pretty pretty fine, but I'll allow it. The The difference between the way her body was found and the way everybody else's was hers was in a river, so the water could have done that to her. Hmm, interesting. But I, I still don't fully believe all of this on its own. But the interesting stuff about this is the different theories that have been found to be most valid. Yeah. Hy hypothermia is the one that's actually what scientists truly believe is the real theory but their speculations are what's interesting so i'll go through well i mean list that, hypothermia too is interesting because that's like that's like saying that someone died from heart stoppage it's like yeah well your heart stops when you die and it's like hypothermia is ultimately what killed them but what caused them to to rip from their tents and assumedly bolt out into the snow right that that's the crazy thing like hypothermia like mr green is all bundled up in his snow gear but they find these bodies that are pretty much just in their underwear and bare feet and the initial thought is that these hikers were so compelled by an unknown compelling force to get out of their campsite that they didn't even bother putting on the gear that they needed to survive but that, that makes a lot of sense, too, that one of the other crew members just took the clothes off so that they could bundle up extra warm. But these bodies were found spread out different locations, which is why there was months apart from finding them. Yeah. And that means that they all died at different times. If, if there was a stripped body and then much farther away, another body that is more bundled up, there is an unknown amount of time between those two deaths and what happens there, right? And what's crazy is the last four travelers weren't found until two months later in May, meaning hypothetically when the first ones were found on the 26th, some of these could have still been alive. It's unlikely, but some of these could have still been alive. And the possible theories that have come around, the boring ones are animal attacks, hypothermia, obviously, but that's how they died, not how it happened. An avalanche, which there isn't really a reason to believe that happened. There's got to be some, like, that's got to be one that you can pretty scientifically 
survey the area and tell if there was or wasn't an avalanche. I'm not sure. Yeah. Catabatic winds, which is a hurricane level wind that is colder to colder or common to colder climates. And then military involvement, which there isn't really a reason to believe this either, because at this point, I mean, why would military be involved in this area? You could do a whole episode about that, but there's no real theory there. But then there are three theories that we actually do care about. And yeah, so the first one is fireballs in the sky. The second one is the Yeti. And the third most interesting one that we'll focus on last is the infrasound-induced panic. Let's do the Yeti first because that one is the most simple and probably the most knee-jerk conspiracy is that it was a Yeti attack. And that is... It's not as interesting. First of all, that's the the Yeti doesn't live in the Himalayas. Monsters Inc. got it wrong. The Yeti does live in the Urals, but this is not a Yeti attack because you don't see on the bodies themselves, there's not really any signs of like an animal attack because if an animal is attacking, probably looking for some sort of source of food and the bodies were not ripped up. Most of them were completely intact. And this is my problem with this theory and the fireball theory is that the bodies were completely intact, but also the tent was torn apart from the inside. So did the Yeti sneak into the tent and attack from the inside of the tent and they were tearing their way away from the Yeti? And with the Yeti, why in the world would the Yeti attack and then not do anything? I guess it could be protecting its area, but one person would clearly be injured from it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, there would be some sort of claw marks. There would be some sign of... There, there wasn't... Some of the, the trauma that was found on some of the bodies was like blunt force. Or in the case of the woman found in the river, seemingly a surgical operation where just her eyes and her tongue are missing, which that immediately sends your brain towards like serial killer like very intentional uh like an intentional massacre but knowing now that that she's found in the water and like maybe some of the natural forces there caused some of her organs to deteriorate faster than others that's pretty believable so the yeti theory comes from the cameras they found at the campsite according to one of the photos which you'll be able to see on our instagram today you can see a yeti standing in the background now There's it's a certainly photo. okay. There was a camera at the scene. I didn't know this. So yes, they found on the campsite they found cameras and diaries, which led them to certain theories. But mostly, most of the camera work was similar to what we were talking about with uh, you, uh, Yudin er- earlier. The idea that these cameras were here was just I want to take a camera on a camping trip, so I'm going to shoot some photos of it. Right. Shoot some photos. But there isn't really anything interesting other than this one Yeti photo. But the image is very blurry and it's in the background. So it could 100% just be a person wearing a very dark coat. You can see it as, okay, this might be a Yeti. If I'm making it, if I'm stretching this for a theory, this could be a Yeti. But it looks so close to just an old Russian coat that I feel comfortable saying that's what it probably is. Yeah. I can see what you're talking about now and how people who believe in the cryptid bipeds, Bigfoot and Yeti, would be very excited by there being this photo evidence. The tree in the foreground is what's in focus, is why the person's blurred out. 
But if you're if you're on a hiking expedition, like you're gonna want to grab a selfie when you're at the summit or whatever. Like if they're conducting research, it's not like they're a research team. They're gonna want a camera and they're gonna want to document the process of their travel. It this does just look like one of the members of the team in the background, and this would not be evidence for anything if the photographer had just taken the time to put the person in focus. You can clearly say, okay, this does look like it could be a Yeti. Sure. Right? It it's it doesn't have enough details to say, oh yeah, that's a human person. That's Jeffrey over there. But it also doesn't have enough Yeti details to say, oh yeah, that's the Yeti over there. Yeah, and sure. I mean you can you can tell by the trees the approximate height of this thing, and we're talking about six feet. It's a very normal human man size. Not the monstrous hulking Yeti that you imagine that could massacre eight people. Yeah. And then, okay, let's do the fireballs in the sky so we can dive into the really interesting one. Yeah, great balls of fire. This is the UFO theory, right? Because two knee-jerk reactions, government, UFOs. Government one, no one could come up with a good reason for the government to do this. So that was immediately out the window. Uh, balls of fire in the sky? I don't know anything about this theory. So the balls of fire in the sky rumor follows that eyewitnesses in the northern Urals apparently saw fast-moving balls of fire in the night sky around this time in history. People believe they could be Soviet missile or rocket tests, but some believe that the fireballs or whatever they were exploded in the sky and emitted a, a beam of unspecified energy that directly caused the skier's death. Bizarre. So the idea is that the fireballs exploded and the energy made these people need to leave the tent. I don't know what that means. And they, I've, I looked into this as much as I felt like I had time for, but they needed to leave the tent. This theory has been pretty severely criticized more than the other ones have. But what makes it so interesting is that it still hasn't been explicitly debunked. Like, there's no way to know exactly, oh, yeah, it cannot be true. These fireballs cannot be true. This is a more interesting theory if the accounts of the fireballs came from something unrelated to these mountaineers. If they went into a nearby village, uh, I think you said it was a village that was relatively close by, Mm -hmm. and they asked, what did you see the night of the incident? And then they described something. That's not very interesting. If there is documentation of people seeing this, unbeknownst to them that there are mountaineers seeing the same thing, that's way more compelling. The idea that that there was already evidence of the fireballs, and it just so happened to be at the same time that these mountaineers went missing. Uh, So I think this is similar to what we saw about the UFOs that we talked about a couple weeks ago, about the uh, Scandinavian rockets is that these balls of fire were the the seeings of them happened over a period of time. So it wasn't just two nights, the same two nights these guys went missing. It was a period of, it could have been weeks, could have been months, that occasionally somebody would look up in the sky and see a fireball and write it down in his diary. And so the coincidence is less likely that, oh, hey, the reason we believe the fireballs did it is because it only happened the exact same night we think these people went missing. It's that these people went missing in the same couple months that these 
fireballs may have appeared if they did, and if we can trust these few sightings. So if these mountaineers are in their tents and there is a sudden ball of energy, an explosion in the sky, I can see that causing enough panic that, I mean, you you wake up, there's explosions, suddenly the sky is bright, you don't know what's going on. You just want to vomitos. Like, you want to get out as quick as possible, which really what's so... The tent is what makes this so unsettling. The idea of it being ripped apart from the inside. Like, they, these people being so terrified of whatever it is they saw or thought they saw that they didn't even bother going out of the tent the proper way. They didn't bother unzipping the, the zipper and putting on their clothes. They just tore out of there in a primal fear. And uh, I guess... If I woke up to fireballs like that in the sky above my head, I would think, okay, is the world ending? I need to be with family. I need to be with the people I care about. You just right need now. to be away. Like, I need to get farther away from whatever this is because it can't be good for me. And then you, they saw what looked like people trying to return back to the camp, which obviously implies that at some point the danger was over. But they were already in a situation where they aren't properly dressed, they're injured from something, and they just don't make it back to the campsite. You know what? You've convinced me that the fireball theory is valid. It's potentially true. If we're operating under the assumption that some sort of panic, some sort of madness seized the group, that's as good of an explanation as any. Yeah. Uh, and I believe that some sort of madness must have, because otherwise, why would they leave almost essentially naked? Right, and even if the some one of the group like stripped the other one in the group, they didn't have the rest of their supplies with them. Like there was there, it's suicide to just leave your camp when you're at that altitude and it's sub zero. So they there must have been something worse than dying of hypothermia that was at their campsite. What gets me is the snow, though. Because I'm, I live here in Utah and it snows for a couple months in the winter. And so our backyard will be coated in snow. If I walked out there in socks or, well, honestly, socks is worse than barefoot. If I walked out there in socks, I'm going to have a miserable month. Right. You're not going to get over it. It's only 27 degrees. These people are far sub-zero dealing with like insane temperature that they are probably like triple sleeping bagged in this tent. I cannot imagine getting out of the tent no matter what and thinking, yeah, I don't need my shoes. That's that's essentially like saying, yeah, I don't need my feet after whatever happens here. And before we get into the uh, infrasound theory, I want to address mountain madness. And if you see people behaving irrationally on a mountain, it's not unprecedented. People act crazy at high altitudes. But it's really hard to study because you can't humanely have test subjects at 28,000 feet for days on end. Yeah. So a lot of the evidence about how our brains work at that altitude is completely anecdotal. Like people who are mountaineers that have reached the summit and come back telling researchers how they felt is kind of the most we can get. We do know that there is high-altitude cerebral edema, which is just abbreviated HACE, H-A-C-E. And that is one knee-jerk, like, medical, physiological 
explanation for this <coughs> because we do know that this happens where it's for some people who aren't properly acclimating to the altitude your brain will swell with fluid and that causes people to have acute you know mountain sickness which is disorientation disorientation lethargy nausea and importantly hallucinations mm-hmm. and we know this happens it's pretty rare but the thing is it doesn't cause like people don't uh even though people have hallucinations and visions with this cerebral swelling the lethargy lethargy whatever it slows you down big time and when you have this condition you need to be treated quickly like you need to be taken to a lower altitude and treated and it's not something that goes away on its own you there is if you find a body who died from this condition you can tell by looking at the brain that that's what happened that's not what happened to these people no, and it would it would be an easy answer to what happened to the tent, what happened to the campsite, what happened to all of us, all of it, if we found their bodies like that. And so we get into just what's that? That's the uh, physiological, like your brain reacting to a high altitude and a pressure that it's not used to and not adjusted to. There is, however, mountain madness, pure psychosis, and again, all the evidence we have for this is anecdotal. But there are many accounts of mountaineers experiencing vivid hallucinations that speak to them in the case of hallucinating mountain guides and other family, family members and friends. And it leaves no damage to the brain. Like there's, there's no side effect. There's no physical symptom other than just sheer psychosis and hallucination. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of theorizing about like just by the time that your your brain is at 20,000 feet, uh, it can begin to hallucinate apropos of nothing. And so there are accounts of mountaineers who have hallucinated a guide, like this, this account of this one man. Uh, I'm actually going to pull up his name really quick. Here's a brief story from the Business Insider about the climber, Jeremy Windsor, who was climbing Mount Everest. Jeremy met a man named Jimmy, while he was climbing the mountain. Jimmy said hello to Windsor and encouraged him to keep going, always saying, come on, change your oxygen cylinder, get moving. Uh, He was a primary motivator that allowed him to keep pushing himself. Uh, He had thought about giving up, but Jimmy was an encouraging voice and really helped him like succeed at the climb. So Windsor saw Jimmy on the balcony of Everest, a place Windsor described as a cold windswept snow shelf high up on the southeast ridge. Balcony is 8,200 meters. Uh, That's more than 26,900 feet. Hmm. It's well into the death zone. Capital D, capital Z is officially called the death zone. The area in which you have to have an oxygen supply to live. Um, That high up, most people rely on supplemental oxygen to survive. Windsor and Jimmy climbed together for the next 10 hours. Windsor remembers hearing Jimmy's uh, uh, Krampens scraping along the ice. Crampins? I guess I'm going to have to look up what that means. Oh, they're boots. Crampins are just snow climbing boots, everybody. He remembers it, was hearing... nice them, it was nice of them to say crampins instead of just snow climbing boots. So Windsor remembers hearing Jimmy's crampins scraping along the ice, hearing the oxygen flow in his face mask, and feeling his weight tug on the safety line that they shared. They talk as they took rest and gather the energy for the next push. When they reached the Hillary Step, which is the now collapsed final ridge to climb the summit, Jimmy said, cheerio, and vanished. Jimmy wasn't real. Jimmy was never real. 
I was warmed by the thought of a, hum a human company and too breathless to question whether or not he was real because he seemed so real, Windsor wrote later. And these tales of mysterious companions or voices from the mountains are really common. Uh, wow. I read another account of a man whose name escapes me now that got separated from his partner, ended up on the wrong side of this mountain and had a 6,000 foot drop. Suddenly these mountain guides show up and tell him, uh, if you want to get down, that's the fastest way. And he was in such a, like, a psychotic state that he was about to jump 6,000 feet to his death. Uh, he survives this tale because he had enough sense within him to jump six feet first onto a smaller ledge. And when he felt that shock of pain from just landing like on locked knees from six feet, he was like, hmm, I don't think I can survive the rest of this fall. And yeah. so he didn't jump the remaining 6,000 feet. Uh, Why didn't he just do six feet over and over again a thousand times? Because I don't think he had that kind of... Uh, a stair step? Yeah, it, the, the, he was looking at a, basically a sheer drop. And he, he, went, yeah. he went off to another side to test jump. And, when, and the pain basically snapped him out of the hallucination. And the, the mountain guides that were recommending he jump just disappeared. They weren't, they weren't yeah. there to begin with. So hallucinations on a mountain are not uncommon. But yeah. the thing is, there are always stories about lone individuals who either get separated or are making the trek by themselves and their mind like invents someone to talk to. This is a group of eight people experiencing something simultaneously and no, um, no psychosis of that, of that kind will affect everyone equally at the same time. Yeah. And that leads us to infrasounds, something that could affect everyone within a small area. So yeah, lastly, let's talk about infrasound. This theory was really only introduced 2013 when a man named Donner Eicher, Donnie Eicher, released a book titled Dead Mountain, The Untold True Story of the Dyatlov Pass Incident. He proposed that the skiers may have been driven to hysteria by infrasound waves caused by a weather phenomenon known as a Carmen Vortex Street. Basically, in layman's terms, the Vortex Street is a pattern that emerges when a fluid or gas flows around a fitting object, in this case, a mountain. And when this occurs on a large scale, the wind gas patterns... Wait a minute. How long ago did our show become actually educational? I don't know, but I'm learning so much. Wild. We started this as a joke. Okay. When this occurs on a large scale, the wind gas patterns can create low frequency sound waves that have been blamed for harmful physiological and psychological symptoms in human beings, which typically ranges from annoyance to nausea. Usually nothing larger than no nausea, but this example is being argued to be that case. Iker argues that this was an extremely severe case of it that caused a panic that made them leave their tents and run to their deaths. Studies done in 2013, er, yeah, any questions so far? Well, infrasound, I wanted to explain, because I, I don't know about this, the, the way it could be artificially produced through the mountain and the wind. I doubted this at first because I thought it had to be a conspiracy. I thought it had to be someone generating the sound because music and all sound, it's just wiggly air. And yeah. even if you can't hear it, 
the air around you is still moving when when sound is being produced. So so you have dog and still making sound. Absolutely. So you have like dog whistle levels. That's sound we can't hear, but infrasound actually goes the other direction, and it's sound that is such a low frequency that we can't hear yeah. it. But if it's strong enough, your body can still feel it. It still creates ripples in the air. It is still a pressure, and it still affects the person who is within its like within its range, which at low frequencies is really wide. And so infrasound is exactly that. It's low frequency. Basically, hertz, which is the the universal measurement for sound less than 20 hertz of of sound is infrasound and greater than 20,000 is ultrasound which is stuff like dog whistles stuff that humans can't hear but other things can and so we are in that green area right between infrasound and ultrasound between 20 and 20,000 but that does not mean we can't feel and our bodies don't actually hear the other sound we just can't and what infrasound is in this case is the the sound street or the vortex street is basically a wind wave with a specific gas that is circu- uh, circulating around this mountain. And the way that gas is moving is creating this sound while it is moving around the mountain that is not where these people can hear it, but it is affecting what is going on in their bodies and their brains. I mean, imagine like what it feels like when you're at a party and the most annoying song comes on and it's so loud and everyone else seems to be enjoying it and you just want to like get out of there and get some fresh air because this song is so obnoxious and you can't seem to escape it. So you got to like step out of the balcony and get a breather. That's just for, that's just for a pop song that you hate. Imagine if your bones, if you felt this sound in your skeleton and it caused extreme pain and discomfort. Imagine like how much of a how your body would react to that. Like it, it could send you into a fight or flight like I got to get out of here. I got to get away from whatever this is. Especially if you don't know where it's coming from or what it is. You just know that you're feeling something you don't want to feel anymore and you want to get away from it. And this is actually used as a weapon in a villain character in a movie if you've seen the Kingsman films. The first Kingsman movie uses a chemical that releases, or not a chemical, uses an app that he has people download on their phones that will automatically start playing a noise that gets them to attack each other. And that kind of hysteria is crazy and not realistic. But what is happening here, the idea that these people have this annoyance, and I'd be interested to learn what kind of nausea is actually caused by this kind of low frequency infrasound. But this kind of nausea at a heightened scale could become so overwhelming that you would tear apart your tent and try and escape it as quickly as you can. And it would make sense that all nine of these people would hear the same sound and feel the same sound at such an intensity that they would feel this urge to leave at the same time. Right. But I mean, like everything we talk about, the this theory isn't super believed by a lot of people, but it makes sense and fits the situation in such an interesting way that I don't have that. Like, I understand it's probably not true. I still like speculating on it. Studies in 2003 have stated that scientists don't believe anything more than mild annoyance can be caused by these vortex street infrasound waves. 
But there's one more twist to this story. As of 2014, if you go back and look at the archive of the investigation, there's a decent amount of the case files that are missing. Oh, man. And what's crazy is there's no reason of this known yet, but every single time this case has been brought up in the news and culture and history, a new mystery like this appears. And fortunately, for those of us curious to learn more, in February, 60 years after the incident, the Russian government announced they were reopening the investigation. If you want to listen to something that is within the human's capability of hearing, and I would recommend music is a great place to start, why not Threadbare, a song by Glenn Merle. That's off the album Burner Proof. That is our intro and outro music. And he has other fantastic tunes on iTunes, Spotify, and any place you stream music or glennmerlemusic.com. And then if you want to follow us on our social media, I will post a couple photos from the cameras that were found and from the investigation on our Instagram and our Twitter. But our Instagram is Strictly Confidential Show and our Twitter is S Confident Show. And here you can find out what episodes we're doing, stuff like that, what kind of topics we're going to talk about next, what kind of stuff like that. And you can message us on there as well if you have stuff you want us to talk about. And then the email address we have, if you want to send us anything, is strictlyconfidentialshow at gmail.com. If you want to be an interviewee, we'd like to be interviewers. You've heard that we've done two or three different interview episodes in the past, and we'd like to do more. So if you have any personal theories or experiences you want to share, we want to talk with you about them and tell your best friend to listen to the show. Say it every week, but it's a big deal. If you have a friend that has similar interests to you and you like this show they'll probably trust your recommendation. And that sort of word of mouth communication is an absolute marketing gold mine because it is the best way for any product, any service, any podcast to grow. Yeah. And I think that's all we do. That's all we do on this show. Well, I've been Jackson. And I've been Asher. And this has been Strictly Confidential. And as always, in Soviet Russia, Strictly Confidential been you. Had to do another one.